Uh, I think she's still muted. Valerie, you're muted. Oh, yeah. Sorry. That's that's the cosmos. Yeah. <laughs> muting me. <laughs> Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer, following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years' experience. My name is Valerie Francis, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Here with me are four of my fellow certified StoryGrid editors, Jari Bolander, Anne Holly, Kim Kessler, and Leslie Watts. Each week, one of us pitches a film as an excellent example of a significant story principle. The rest of us explore the story from different angles to give you, our listeners, a deep insight into story structure. This week, Kim pitched A Man Called Uva as a great example of a global internal genre story. This 2015 Swedish comedy drama was directed and written by Hannes Holm, based on the novel of the same name by Frederick Bachman. Now, I want to give you a warning before we begin. While there are indeed funny moments in A Man Called Uva, the story also contains multiple attempted suicides by the protagonist. And this also plays a significant role in our discussion today. Kim will start us off with the genre as always, and a brief summary of each of the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff to orient us to the story. Kim, take it away. So I am seeing this story as a global morality redemption story. The beginning hook, after Uva is fired from his job due to his age, he decides it's time to join his wife beyond the grave. But his attempts to hang himself are foiled by many interruptions until eventually the rope to his noose breaks. In the middle build, Still determined to join his wife as soon as possible, Uva pursues several new ways to end his life, until he sees another man intentionally fall onto the tracks. Uva saves him and decides not to die at that time. He begins helping a neighbor learn to drive, takes in a stray cat, and even babysits. But when a meddling white shirt, someone who represents a selfish institution, brings up painful truths about Uva's past and his dead wife, he prepares to take his own life with a shotgun only to be interrupted again by a young man who needs a place to stay. In the ending payoff, when Uva learns that his neighbor and rival is going to be sent to a care facility, he puts his gift into action and organizes a solution to outwit the white shirt. But when Uva learns he has a heart problem, he must decide whether to try to join his wife as soon as possible or continue to live and share his gift with those around him. He chooses to live, helping his neighbors along the way until his natural death, where he rejoins his beloved wife and leaves a legacy behind with those who knew him. It's a lovely story. Since I'm in charge of flashbacks this season, or apparently I have put myself in charge of flashbacks this season, and the flashbacks in this movie tell a whole different story. Here's my version of the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff from that perspective. And it's a love story, but I think it's primarily a worldview education story in which love gives meaning to a deeply sad life. So looking at the flashbacks as a separate story, the beginning hook is when young Uva loses his mother at age seven, he and his father must build a life for themselves alone. But later, when his father is killed on the job in the rail yard, Uva must give up college plans and take his father's old job. In the middle build, and I'm kind of guessing at the breaks here, when a greedy developer allows Uva's family house to burn down, Uva, at his lowest point with nothing but the clothes he's wearing, meets Sonia. They begin a courtship and eventually marry after completing their educations. When, after a long wait, Sonia becomes pregnant, they take an ill-fated trip to Spain, where a tour bus crash causes Sonia to lose both the baby and the use of her legs. And in the ending payoff, when Sonia has trouble getting a job because of her wheelchair, Uva remakes their home and the school to accommodate her, and Sonia becomes a successful teacher, giving meaning and hope to everyone around her, especially Uva. They live happily ever after until Sonia precedes Uva into death at the age of 58. So taken all together, it reads more like a lifetime saga than a straightforward single story. It has a couple of all is lost moments, as real life does. But I'm struck by the fact that the events of this backstory feel much more like a worldview education story than the present day part of the story feels. And I'll have more to say about that backstory in a little while. That's really interesting because I also saw this as worldview education. Now, 
granted, because I get to be moderator this week, I didn't go into the story with as much detail as the rest of you did. But it just fascinates me that we all have an equal knowledge of story, but we can look at a film like this through different lenses. All right, Kim, what have you learned this week about global internal genre stories from a man called Uba? So as you know, this season, and probably for the rest of the time, I am studying the what, how, and why of global internal genres. This is selfishly motivated because these are the stories I seek to tell in my own writing. They're prescriptive tales that deal with life's tragic and painful truths, but in humorous and heartfelt ways. But since we could all use help better understanding internal genres, this actually neutralizes my selfishness to self-interest aligned with the needs of others. By the way, these are morality jokes, uh, morality life value jokes, in case that wasn't clear. There's only and, one you know, person in the world who will make jokes about morality. <laughs> You're welcome. Stories. You're welcome. Um, so some people might say that a joke isn't funny if you have to explain it. But as the wife of a stand-up comedian, I can tell you that sometimes that's the only part of a joke that is. So, okay. So first up, what is it? And once again, no surprise, we use Friedman's framework to noodle this out. So the protagonist. Clearly, this is Uva, but there's also elements of a great mini plot backdrop here with very specific setting with many characters whose welfare we care about. So hold that thought. I know Leslie's going to talk more about it, and then we'll come back around to this aspect when we get to the controlling idea or theme of this story, which is the big why. Okay, so now we're going to look at the protagonist situation at the beginning of the story. So what about Uva's character? Well, he's very strong-willed. His moral code Although he seems very rigid, it's very flexible because he applies it in a self-serving way based on his mood and his personal goals. His thought, he's very sophisticated and he has very strict definitions of how the world should be. But we find out through the course of the story that at the beginning, he doesn't have all the information about Rune and Anita's situation. And finally, Uva's fortune, that is his external circumstances, he has recently lost his wife and the people around him perceive him as hostile because he is. Now let's look at Uva's situation at the end of the story. His character, that is his moral code and his strength of will, it becomes consistent. So he starts applying it consistently with acts of integrity. That means what he thinks and what he does now are the same all the time. His mode of thought he has gained this missing information about Rune and Anita, but he's still just as sophisticated as he was, of course. And finally, his fortune, that is his external circumstances, he's found a new family connection and people now perceive him as generous. So which element has changed the most? We can see aspects of each element change for Uva, but for me, the major change has to do with Uva's actions, how he applies his moral code to his behaviors. So how do we feel about this change? Well, for me, I felt really proud of him and, and really glad that he did what he did. From here, we can create a cause and effect statement. When Uva, a grumpy old man determined to join his deceased wife as soon as possible, is challenged to share his gift of a life of experience by the circumstances of his neighbors, he chooses to honor his wife through his actions rather than join her through a premature death, affecting positive, lasting change in the lives of those around him. This is why I see this story as morality redemption. Now, it's really interesting because this story has a strong similarity to Fundamentals of Caring, which we studied before, which is the, you know, has a tragic loss of a loved one in the recent past. But then why is Uva a morality redemption story and not a worldview education story? Here's what I see. Finding meaning and significance is going to be a part of the path to redemption. But unlike an education plot, which is purely a change in thought, that is, their perspective and how they see the world, redemption is about action, behavior, choices, and ultimately sacrifice. The education protagonist does not need to take new actions in order to complete their internal change. The change of the thought is the change, but a redemption protagonist change, and all the morality protagonists for that matter, is only complete when they've made a decision plus an action that reflects their inner moral code, either by rising to sacrifice or falling to selfishness. Next up, how is the story told that communicates this arc? So we want to take a look at the life values. The life values at stake in any of the four morality genres are on the spectrum of selfishness and altruism, with a full spectrum of possibility, beginning with the negation of the negation, selfishness masked as altruism, selfishness or self-obsession, self-interest or self-preservation, 
And then a neutral value of self-interest aligns with the needs of others. And then the positive values, putting the needs of one person above yourself, putting the needs of your tribe above yourself, and sacrificing yourself for all of humanity. The range for this specific redemption story appears to span from the negation of the negation to somewhere around putting the needs of the tribe above yourself. Okay, from here, my goal is to get a handle on how the global values show up in the story, how they shift on a macro level, and what tangible micro elements on the page communicate these values to the audience. So this week, I've nerded out and lined out my observations in a spreadsheet, which you can check out in the show notes. One aspect that tripped me up this week was the definition of sacrifice. I wasn't sure if Uva's actions in the ending payoff counted, in part because it didn't seem painful enough, like the cost to Uva wasn't high enough. And I'm not sure where or why I picked up the idea that sacrifice only counts if it hurts, either physically or emotionally. But along with stretching my understanding of story, it made for some very interesting self-reflection to unpack. Part of my problem was that I had this idea that redemption is the opposite of punitive, which is not entirely accurate. It's not an unreasonable thought. You know, they are within the same life value spectrum and one ends positive and the other negative. So that makes them opposites, right? Well, not exactly. Even though there are plenty of times we've heard redemption referred to as bad guy turns good and is rewarded and punitive as good guy goes bad and is punished, which is, you know, a reasonable shorthand for these arcs. But these phrases feel like oversimplifications for what's really happening in the pattern of meaning. We know, based on the morality life value spectrum, that there are different levels of sacrifice. Not every protagonist will sacrifice self for all of humanity. And like all life values, there are gradations of selfishness and sacrifice, which will be relative to the specific redemption protagonist. But comparing and contrasting with punitive is really what helped me sort all this out. The punitive protagonist may begin fairly neutral or even positive on the selfishness or altruism life value spectrum. But undoubtedly, they will reach the negation of the negation, selfishness masked as altruism, at some point in the story. This is what leads to their punishment, which feels like righteous satisfaction to the audience. The punitive protagonist goes too far, often due to their ambition, and begins intentionally harming others for personal gain. Walter White in Breaking Bad is a great example. But this definition of selfishness does not automatically transfer to the redemption protagonist. The redemption protagonist begins at their own lowest point of selfishness and will showcase some aspect of the negation of the negation in the beginning hook, but their flavor of selfishness is not the same as the punitive protagonist. The redemption protagonist's selfishness is still an obsession and focus solely on their essential action, but rather than intentionally harming for personal gain, it will likely manifest as withholding their gift from their sphere of influence. It's a subtle but important distinction. So for Uva, he begins by being selfishly obsessed with joining his wife in death to the point that he will go out of his way to help his neighbors just so he can get on with it. So he is capable, but he withholds his gift and only uses it to further his own ends. It's an act of omission rather than an act of commission, like the punitive protagonist. Now, I want to pause here and make it clear that suicidal themes are not automatically equated with selfishness in stories or in real life. The meaning behind the action, that is, the life value it represents, can only be understood in context of the whole story. So, what does all of this have to do with the definition of sacrifice in the ending payoff? By understanding Uva's specific slant and flavor of selfishness and altruism life values, it became clearer that his sacrifice in the ending payoff is to actively give his gift to meet the needs of those around him without regard to his own wants. Like Maximus, Uva never stops wanting to join his wife in death, but he chooses to stop actively pursuing it in order to help people for as long as his natural life allows. And for him, this is a sacrifice. The next piece I want to take a look at on all the films I'm studying this season is the ending. Is the ending satisfying? And is there anything I would change about it? Is the ending of Uva's story satisfying? Yes. Because Of the various threads, it was tricky for me to precisely pinpoint the turning point, crisis, and climax of the ending payoff, and it almost may be as if there are two sequences, one with the turning point crisis climax for that external society story that we're going to talk about, which is helping Rune, 
and a separate turning point crisis climax for Uva's internal redemption genre, which pertains to him actively ending his life versus actively living his life. Either way, we experience a satisfying series of moments, interacting with the new baby, taking Parvana's daughter for a drive, the letter that he left behind, reuniting with Sonia on the train in death, and the final image of Parvana's daughter checking the gate. Norman Friedman points out that the redemption protagonist is rewarded for their sacrifice. For Uva, this is finally being reunited with his wife, and also a funeral full of people who thought he pulled his weight, along with a community that will preserve his values. This is a reminder that the reward the redemption protagonist receives may be in death. The next piece that I'm looking at are the other genres that are at play in the story. We definitely see a love story between Uva and Sonia, and this is part of his backstory, and the ghosts of his past, which is a convention of the redemption. And I see Sonia serving as a mentor in his past and also a conscience in his present. The main external genre that I notice is society, disenfranchised, which has life values of power and impotence. We see elements of age discrimination when Uva is fired from his job for being older, Rune and Anita's situation with the caregiving company. We see disabled discrimination, Sonia in the past at work, and Rune in the present. We see elements of class discrimination, Uva in the past with the white shirts who wanted his house and his neighbor's house. We also see, as Anne mentioned, an internal genre in Uva's past. Now, I saw this as status sentimental for Uva in the past. He suffers misfortune um, with losing his mother and his father and his house. And then he meets Sonia, who helps him and encourages him and allows him to get an education and live a fulfilling life. Now, I wanted to make a note and a recommendation that there is a film, Girl in the Book, that is on Netflix that I almost swapped out as my morality film, but it didn't quite fit the stories that I'm studying because honestly, it's just not uplifting enough and funny enough for me to study for my own works. But The Girl in the Book has a past and a present as well. And there are two different genres at play. There's a status pathetic story in the past, and there's a testing triumph story in the present with society women's as a global external story. So it is a very satisfying and excellent story that I highly recommend you check out if you're interested in this sort of thing. So the final thing I want to point out here is the other characters that are in the film, they have internal plots as well. Sonia in the past, I see her as having a status admiration story. Parvana and her family, there's a worldview maturation or what Norman Friedman would call that effective plot about Uva. I also see Parvana as playing a mentor or conscience for Uva in the present, much like his wife did. Mersad, the young man who comes to stay with Uva after his father throws him out, he has what I would call a sort of status sentimental arc. Rune and Anita also seem to have a status sentimental arc. And the cat, the stray cat that Uva takes in also has a status sentimental arc. This pattern of internal subplots for the other people in Uva's sphere of influence was a big aha moment for me. And it shines a light on the why of the redemption genre. We'll get into that in a bit. But before we look at that big meta why, I want to pass things over to my fellow roundtablers to hear how the story works or doesn't work or how it works maybe differently from their specific areas of study. Holy guacamole, Kim. You've got a status sentimental genre for the cat. (laughs) I love it. Jari, I am so glad I'm not following Kim this week. (laughs) So I do not envy you, my friend. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) thanks. A lot to uh, live up to. Totally. All right. And look, well, luckily the cat doesn't talk, right? So you don't have to worry about I don't about have to worry about the cat. Yeah. All right. So what do, what do you have for dialogue this week? Well, it's as challenging because uh, it's in Swedish, but it does have subtitles. But I did want to look at the dialogue because I think it's another great example of set and setting, especially Ova and how he interacts with the world. And so for the dialogue, I'm actually going to read it from the captions as best I can. But before we do that, let's take a look at the set and setting. The movie takes place in a townhome complex in a Swedish town. It looks like pretty much any other Swedish town as best as I can tell. It appears to be either fall or spring since there's no snow on the ground and people are wearing jackets and sweaters and we sort of find out later it's around March. Since we're in Sweden, (laughs) we're going to expect the people to act like Swedes. 
since uh, Sweden is an egalitarian society built on historical circumstances that favor a sense of solidarity. And one of Sweden's goals is vibrant neighborhoods because they play a key role in this movie. And I found a site called Every Culture that sort of explains kind of this goal of the vibrant neighborhood. And I'll just read it real quick. One goal was design vibrant neighborhoods, complete with schools, workplaces, community buildings, parks, health clinics, and shops. A successful example is Valenby, a Stockholm suburb that attracted international attention upon its completion in 1954. So obviously that's they've been doing this for a long time. Um, traffic safety has also been an ongoing preoccupation of planners, and that effort combined with campaigns against drunk driving has given the country the world's lowest traffic rate of deaths. And this becomes a little apparent, of course, in the movie because all the doesn't want people to drive in his little townhome complex. Given Sweden's egalitarian mindset, it's no surprise that Ova and his neighbors will expect a certain mindset from each other. You see that in the opening scene when Ova is walking around inspecting the townhome complex. From that, you sense that he feels he is important until he runs into the current president of the complex, and then Ova's mindset comes out as the opposite of egalitarian with him like wanting to kill the dog. So, you know, he definitely shows his kind of curmudgeon streak is what we see. And you sort of never see him smile until about maybe three quarters of the way through the movie. He wants people to follow the rules and he clearly misses his wife. And we don't know much about how much he misses his wife until the first time he tries to kill himself, but he's interrupted by Parvana. And notice I said, this is like the first time. So there's a bunch of times he's trying to do this. So I'll um, I'll read through the scene real quick and you'll get a sense of how his character is coming out. Uh, Parvana, voice in the distance. Easy does it. Come on. Yes. Careful. Hello? Hello? Come on. Stop. 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 Oops. Go forward a little. Ova. What the hell? Parvana. Go forward a little. Patrick. Ova. What do you think you're doing as he's walking out? Parvana. A tad more. I'm asking the same thing. He's nuts. Ova. Driving's not allowed here, but you may have a problem reading Swedish signs, eh? Parvana, are you blind? I'm not the one who's driving. Patrick, who's the driver. Hi, nice to meet you. I'm Patrick. Ova, you can be called Mickey Mouse for all I care, but if you want to reverse, you have to... Parva interrupts Ova. Turn the wheel the other way and look in the mirrors. Ova, what's she saying? Patrick, no idea. It's Persian. Beautiful though, isn't it? Ova, no, no, hey, no, no, no. Patrick, I didn't hit anything, did I? He actually hits the mailbox. Olva, get out now and go stand somewhere where you're not in the way. Patrick remembered Olva. Thanks, but I, for one, know how to drive. Olva then gets in the car and backs the car with the trailer up where it needs to be. And this scene is really telling of Olva's mindset. He's in the process of committing suicide and just could not let it stand that someone was driving where they were not supposed to be and messing up to boot. If we apply McKee's five tasks of speech, which we've done in the past, this is what we get. The desire. Ovo wants to get back to hanging himself. The sense of antagonism. His new neighbors. Choice of action. Ovo's annoyed and decides to confront them. Action reaction. Ovo tells Patrick to get out of the car. Patrick complies. Expression. Ovo backs up the car and says he needs no help in doing so. He then goes back in the house and goes on with his day. We also see in this scene that Ova smiles at his wife before putting her picture in the window so she cannot see what he's about to do. And this is before this all happens. As Valerie pointed out before our call, the fact that this is done without dialogue is a power of visual. In a novel, this is a great example of when narrative should be used instead of dialogue. You got to have both as we've been talking about. This is also the scene where we get introduced to the kids. Parvana is Persian and Patrick is native Swedish, which will be a little more important later on. The scene ends with Olva going back to hang himself, but then again being interrupted by the neighbors and the girls looking through the window. Olva's voice as a character continues to be revealed as he interacts more and more with the quote-unquote idiots around him, and he likes to use that term a lot. That translates really well from Swedish. He's clearly impatient, and the scene I'm about to talk with you about uh, is one of the reasons he is impatient, and this is as he's visiting his wife's grave, which he often does. Olva uh, speaking to his wife's gravestone. I'm sorry I didn't come yesterday, as I had planned. I just couldn't make it. The place is like a damn fairground. We've got new neighbors opposite. People nowadays. It's shocking, really. They're all incompetent these days. They can't reverse the trailer. They can't mend a puncture. And if you ask them the simplest thing, then they want to have lunch. Just imagine. 
Soon, everyone in the country will be busy having lunch. I'm glad I won't have to live to see it. And we're being pestered by a white shirt, too. A complete car maniac. It's just chaos when you're not here. But if I hurry now, I might see you later today. I miss you. Ove then walks back to his house to try suicide again. And this is more of a monologue than the one below, because I won't really apply the five tasks of speech because there's really no one uh, talking back to him. But Ova's character's voice is really important as well. In this scene, we see why Ova is so distraught, and this drives all that Ova does. It was his wife that helped him make sense of the world. Now that she's gone, he's just compelled to lash out until he can join her, which is clearly his stated intention. Even though we don't understand Swedish, we can get the sense that he's a curmudgeon. He's a grieving man. He can't make sense of the world without his wife. It's touching in so many ways and highlights a, a problem that most older men have, I mean, finding meaning and fulfillment when they lose their spouse and their job, or put another way, when they're not useful in the world. But what's really great is that Ova starts to find meaning with the new family across the way, even though he thinks Patrick is an idiot. <laughs> and this is best captured in the scene when he's teaching Parvana how to drive, and she's getting frustrated, stalls, backs up, hits the car behind her, and the, the driver behind her starts to honk. As Kim mentioned, he's expressing his, um, his gift. Parvana stalls the car at the light and starts to cry. I can't do it. Ova, I'll be damned. Ova steps out of the car and confronts the driver. Hey, have you ever been a beginner? Can't you see the plates? Driver, easy does it, old man. Ova, old man? I'm not your old man, asshole. Ova opens the door and takes the driver out. I'm angry, man. You honk again, and that will be the last thing you do. Get it? Ova pokes the guy's head. Eh? Get it? Ova leaves the driver and gets back in the car. Ova, now, I want you to listen. He's turning to Bravana. You've given birth twice, three times soon. You've come all the way from Iran, fleeing war and all kinds of hell. You've learned a new language, got an education and a job, and you've married a loser. So you have no problem learning to drive. I mean... We're not talking brain surgery here. There, just start the car and drive off. There's another honk. He says, idiot. She drives off smoothly. Great. We see here Ova starting to care about Pravana. This is making it harder and harder for him to commit suicide. This scene is also perfectly in Ova's voice, since it's a mixture between matter of fact and his frustration with the world. This theme continues on as he does all sorts of good deeds to help those around him. And then eventually all these good deeds, it seems like, he finds peace, and then he can move on and meet Sonia in the afterlife, where they first met, as everyone says, in the rail car. So even though it was uh, subtitled and in Swedish, um, it's a really great example of how they used dialogue to uh, drive the story forward, and especially in the set and setting of Sweden. I'm curious, Jari, since it is a subtitled film, and, and we're talking about dialogue here, do you do you think that that had an impact on the viewer? Or let me phrase it another way. What impact do you think uh, the subtitles had on the dialogue? Since we weren't actually listening to the actors deliver the dialogue, do subtitles change their impact or not? What do you think? I think they do. I mean, just like any kind of translation, there's stuff lost in translation. Although... What is interesting is that in pretty much any language that you hear, you can tell when people are annoyed or happy or smiling or laughing. So yeah, I do think the subtitles do diminish a little bit the power of the dialogue, but we can't <laughs> wish, wish we all knew Swedish, I guess. I mean, that's going to be a challenge for anyone telling any kind of story. But I think it, while it may diminish some of the impact, I think overall, when you look at both the captions and what they're saying and how they say it, you really do get a sense of his frustration. But I mean, it's a good point. Definitely something lost in translation, but I do think it comes through in this movie. I noticed one particular loss in translation that did that just really would have been very difficult to carry through to English. And that's when he's uh, he's correcting a point of grammar or pronunciation in Swedish on some basic word that we just in English don't have the option of mispronouncing. So it was really strained to get that across. But correcting people's grammar is a great character trait, right? So they had to include it and it just, translation just didn't work there. So there are places like that that will expect the non-Swedish speaking audience to stretch a little bit to get it. Yeah. 
One of the things I read online, by the way, is I think they're going to redo this film in yeah, English Tom Hanks. with yeah. Tom Hanks. So it'll be interesting to see how they compare. Okay. Moving on to the flashbacks. And <laughs> this story is very flashback heavy. So what did you come up with? Well, as I suggested in my summary of the past timeline story, there are two stories here. The second one is told in flashbacks, and it makes this a somewhat more complex story form than it seems at first. I am not going to claim that this is super complex, but some decisions were made in the filmmaking, which I believe are reflective of what's in the novel, that impart a feeling of complexity. The last two movies that I examined for flashbacks for the podcast were The Fundamentals of Caring and The Spy Who Dumped Me. Now, both of those flashed back in very short bursts to a single pivotal scene in the recent past of the protagonists. In The Fundamentals of Caring, that little bit of backstory carried the meaning of the whole story, as I tried to make the case for in the in the episode. In The Spy Who Dumped Me, I decided, conversely, that the flashback scene served very little purpose at all and could have been dispensed with. But in both films, the flashbacks took up about four minutes of total screen time, and as I say, referred to a single short event in the pasts of the protagonists. Now, A Man Called Uva, by contrast, uses long flashbacks that cover almost the whole of Uva's life up to the story's present. Here are some facts about the flashbacks. They run for a total of 37 minutes, or more than 30% of the film. There are about six of them, depending on how you count them. They are mostly shown in chronological order of the past story, but there are some notable exceptions. There's a flash forward in one place, and we do go back and forth in time a little bit along that past timeline. And they occur either when Uva is near death during one of his suicide attempts or when he's recounting his past to his neighbor and mentor figure, Parvana. Taken as a whole, they're like a highlights-only version of Uva's whole life story, from the age of seven when his mother dies, leaving Uva and his father to cope alone through middle age, not long before when the present story begins. So my first question about flashbacks is, do we need these 37 minutes of backstory to understand the present story? Well, yes and no. No, in the sense that we could understand Uva's bad temper and his isolation from his neighbors and from life through any of the many scenes in the present story where he visits his wife's grave when he's being kicked out of his lifelong job for ageism, which we see in the opening scenes. Any of that would be enough to account for much of his anger and his bad attitude. We could fall back on just a mere curmudgeon stereotype and assume that men nearing 60 all become misanthropes. No reasons required because stereotypes don't require reasons and they make for very shallow stories. But the backstory adds miles of depth and meaning. Uva has enough character as a curmudgeon that it raises a mystery in our minds. How did he get that way? And when we understand that, as Uva says, there was nothing before Sonia and nothing after Sonia, the whole story would have very little meaning for us if we hadn't witnessed the series of horrible losses he suffered before he met her. We needed to see him meet her at the all-is-lost moment of the early life story, right? So yes, we needed the flashback information. My second question is, do we need it in the form of flashbacks? It's always going to be my question about flashbacks, and I will always question my clients about this on flashbacks. Now here, I'm thinking about 19th and early 20th century novels that took their time laying out the protagonist's early life from childhood so that their adult moral arc is crystal clear. I'm thinking like Jane Eyre, Great Expectations, and An American Tragedy, which I happen to be reading at the moment. These novels are generally told in a straight linear sequence. So could Uva's story have worked like that? Well, maybe in a 19th century novel style. There we would begin with seven-year-old Uva losing his mother, poor sad little boy, growing up close to his papa, then losing him at age approximately 16, I think, and giving up his university ambitions to take a blue-collar job on the railroad. Then he loses his family house to fire and finally meets the love of his life, and you can see the problems, right? First of all, it removes the mystery. We know exactly how Uva becomes a curmudgeon because we've been with him all along. The main form of narrative drive, and Valerie, you can correct me on this if you would probably then become dramatic irony. 
And as Valerie, you've been teaching us, for dramatic irony to work, we have to have enormous concern and empathy for the character. Uva is a somewhat tragic figure, maybe a very tragic figure, but it's hard, it's hard to relate to him, even as a little boy. So dramatic irony probably won't drive us on through the story. And what's more, and this is probably more important, the story about a young man who endures great loss and finally finds meaning in love, that's a totally different story. Marriage is the end of that love and worldview story. But wait, tragedy strikes again when his wife loses a baby and her mobility in an accident. And there's a whole new story about how they win through together. But wait, tragedy strikes again. The wife dies and takes all the man's meaning in life with her. It's too much. There are too many arcs and too many all is lost moments to tell this story in that straight linear fashion. So it was a brilliant choice to focus on the final story, the one that begins in late life grief for Uva and ends in some kind of redemption. Revealing his past in good-sized chunks that are clear and vivid, there are no dreamlike qualities, and at moments when Uva is near death or at breaking points, that's a clever device. It's a good choice. We wonder what happened, how Sonia died, what their marriage was like, why she meant so much to him, why he wants to die. That's mystery, and it keeps us going. So how do you do this in writing? Now, I wasn't able to get a copy of the novel from my library in time for the podcast, but I did look at some excerpts, and it does seem that Frederick Backman, the author, used the simple expedient of starting a new chapter with a heading like three weeks earlier and just went with it. You can do that. You can do anything, right? There is nothing wrong with going back in time to build up a character's story in a novel. The questions are, in the kind of story you're telling, does your reader need the flashback information? If so, how much of the information do they need? Pro tip here, as little as possible is always the answer to that question. And where in the story should you insert it? And another pro tip, as late as possible always a good idea. But if your reader doesn't need the backstory, then no amount of clever flashback use will make it work. A Man Called Uva is a great example to study if that's something you plan to try. I am so pleased that you've been paying attention to what I've said about narrative drive. <laughs> oh my God, it's changed my life, Valerie. That stuff is fantastic. <laughs> Oh, my. Um, this season, Leslie has been looking at conventions in the various genres. So, Leslie, I'm really curious to see what you've come up with for A Man Called Uva. Okay, so I'm pivoting a little bit here because I'm talking about mini plot conventions rather than the conventions for the content genre. Now, what are mini plots? They're associated with literary stories, and we sometimes describe them as a slice of life. Most are associated with global internal genres. Nishan tells us mini plot concerns the inner wars of internal antagonism. Now contrast that with the arch plot, which has conventional quest narratives, and of course, anti-plot, which breaks aspects of structure entirely. Now, mini plot seems a little tricky to define, but thankfully, we have plenty of conventions we can point to to bring understanding to this particular story form. And conventions, as I've been studying, as I've told you, involve characters, the setting or circumstances, and means of turning the plot. So for characters, we have a main protagonist who's joined by a group of other characters, and they all seem to be expressing different views on the struggle that the main character faces, either in that main character's life or in their own lives. Of course, we have Uva, who is struggling with service and wanting to be done in life, but we also have these different characters who are expressing opinions on that fact as well. One of the really big conventions that you want to pay attention to in a mini plot is specificity of character. And why do we need to be so specific? Well, in any story, Sean and others talk about how we make a story universal through the specific. But why is that? 
Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who's the author of 100 Years of Solitude, explains that specific telling details, like journalistic facts, lend credibility, which we need, especially in fiction, even when we're telling a story that's on the realism end of the reality spectrum. Now, I want to show you how the author does this in the book, although we can see this in the film as well. But I think that that since we're working on writing stories, I want to show you how the author is demonstrating specific details about this very specific character. These are the opening lines from Frederick Bachman's book. Uva is 59. He drives a sob. He's the kind of man who points at people he doesn't like the look of, as if they were burglars and his forefinger a policeman's flashlight. He stands at the counter of a shop where owners of Japanese cars come to purchase white cables. Uva eyes the sales assistant for a long time before shaking a medium-sized white box at him. So this is one of those opads, is it? He demands. Yes, exactly, an iPad. Do you think you could stop shaking it like that? Uva gives the box a skeptical glance, as if it's a highly dubious sort of box, a box that rides a scooter and wears tracksuit pants and just called Uva my friend before offering to sell him a watch. Now notice that we get these details about Uva, but mostly what we learn about him is from seeing him in action or how he responds to his world, which is very specific. Now, the next chapter shows us Uva's unusual morning routine, and it includes his rounds or his inspection of the community. And again, this shows us him in very specific detail. So another aspect of the character is that they are often passive rather than active. It seems funny to speak of Uva as not being active, right? To solve a problem, he often will build something. He gets right into action, but again, it's a very specific kind of actions. The ones that he is comfortable with, not the ones that require him to step outside of his emotional comfort zone. Another aspect of the character is that they are having an internal struggle rather than external. It's a pitched battle that can produce actually a near catatonic state on the outside. So imagine taking a struggle like happens in Black Panther, but within the internal landscape, and you begin to get an idea of how these stories are unfolding, calm on the exterior, but very involved on the interior. Now, in a film where we can't read the character's thoughts, great acting really helps, and I think they did an excellent job of casting in this film. The book is written in third person with a very close and sympathetic narration, and that really works to provide uh, the context for this story. And it also creates some dramatic irony because there are things that we, the reader, can see and understand that Uva is blind to. Next is the setting and circumstances. So again, contrast the pitched battle inside with the relatively calm exterior. These stories are not set on an epic stage, but a contained micro world that, like the character, is very, very specific. And within that tight setting, you'll often find a rigid hierarchy that impacts the protagonist's struggle. Now, other than the flashbacks, we spend the majority of the time within this small community. We meet the people who inhabit Uva's micro world. And notice how we aren't getting the film equivalent of an info dump, but we learn about the community through Uva's interaction with his neighbors and particularly through the relationship with Rune and how they established the standards for the community as the head of the board and his deputy. Next, we look at means of turning the plot. The protagonist's want is usually deceptively attainable, but something within and without causes the struggle, not allowing them to obtain it. 
Uva really wants to die to join his beloved wife, and it seems like this would be a fairly simple thing for a man of his age, but his neighbors interrupt him, and their needs awaken within him his natural inclination to be of service and his need to see justice done, and that gets in his way. External factors force the internal struggle to the surface and the protagonist recognizes they have to make a change. Again, Uva is done with this world and just wants to join Sonia, but his neighbor's stupidity, and I'm putting that in air quotes, and the behavior of the white shirts distract him from his goal. And really, it's his need to right wrongs, both minor and major, that keep him tied to this plane of existence. Now, philosophical causality is not critical in many plots, but we often see questions related to one's fate and character. And I was particularly struck by Uva's comment, if it's true what they say, that fate is the sum total of our own stupidity, then I think what altered my fate was a result of the stupidity of my neighbors. Now here he was talking about the fire in his neighbor's home and feeling responsible to save the people trapped inside. And when he returned to his home, which was a blade, a blaze that is, the white shirt was telling the firefighters not to bother trying to put it out. What's interesting to me here is the irony in this, that Uva's salvation ultimately comes from being of service to his neighbors, which he sees as their stupidity forcing him to do things. Many plot stories are often nonlinear and play with time, as Anne has described, but of course we still have a very clear beginning, middle, and end. Now, if you're looking for other examples of mini plot, Sean has mentioned The Accidental Tourist, Love Actually, Ladybird, Crazy Heart, and The Gentle Heart. Now, here are four books that I've read in the last year and that I recommend wholeheartedly The Little Paris Bookshop by Nina George, Death Comes for the Archbishop by Willa Cather, The Fisherman by Chigozi Obioma and A Tale for the Time Being by Ruth Ozeki. Thank you so much, Leslie. We don't get a lot of discussion on mini plots, so this was really great. Uh, Kim, did you have anything you wanted to, since this is your topic this week, anything you want to throw in to wrap us up here? Yeah, I just want to say thank you to everybody for everything that you've contributed. I am so excited to keep studying this stuff, and I just appreciate all of your thoughts. The thing I wanted to come back around to here is the big meta why for these specific genres. These are, you know, specific patterns of meaning and why do they exist? Why does humanity need morality redemption stories? So let's start with the controlling idea and theme. We have a model framework that we use for this, which is the external value at stake either prevails or fails when some change from our internal genre. So here we have our external value at stake is from our society disenfranchised genre and our internal genre is you know morality redemption so okay here's the controlling idea or theme that i've come up with power is given to the powerless when sophisticated protagonists stop being self-obsessed and selflessly give their gift in service of others for me this is what the story is really about the people who make a powerful difference these are the mentors of status stories and worldview stories are often our status admiration, morality redemption, and morality testing triumph protagonists. Because once we know our gift, it is our moral duty to share it. And that is what these stories teach us, that no matter what has happened or what we've done, we all have a chance to choose today how to live. And as Sonia tells Uva, Uva, I'm thinking of it. And this means, Uva, either we live or we die, which I think is a lovely sentiment and call to action for everybody. Thanks, Kim. Thank you so much, everybody. To wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners. This week's question comes to us from Robert Burton. Robert writes, I'm a big fan of the book and the podcasts. 
I have a question regarding application of story grid techniques and writing short fiction, three to 5,000 words. Should you try to write shorter scenes or just write one or two scenes that incorporate the five commandments? Any other advice regarding short fiction is welcomed. Okay, this is an excellent question, Robert, and it's one we get fairly often. The issue, believe it or not, is not really about the overall length of the story or even the length of the scenes. It's about understanding how the five commandments of storytelling work. For a scene to work, it must have each of the five commandments. So that is the inciting incident, progressive complications that culminate in a turning point, the crisis, the climax, and the resolution. The turning point is really important, right? Because that's the thing that shifts the value of the scene and makes the scene work. However, not all commandments necessarily need to be on the page or even on on the screen, as we've seen in some of the, um, the films that we've studied on the podcast here. In order to figure out how to make it work, that is, how to write a scene where the five commandments are not necessarily all on the page, you have to study other works of short fiction. You might need to study 50 or, or more short stories before you really get a handle on how other short story writers are doing it. And I know you don't want to hear this. Nobody ever wants to hear this, <laughs> but there's no shortcut. There really isn't. You've, you've got to dive in and read lots of things that other short story writers are writing, but read them actively analyze them, find the five commandments. And it doesn't necessarily take a lot of words to have all the five commandments on the page either. Like Hemingway, for example, he doesn't use a lot of words. We studied a chapter from The Old Man in the Sea during our certification training. And we saw that Hemingway could take one line of text and make it do double, you know, probably triple duty if I went back and looked at it. Charles Dickens, on the other hand, well, he wrote episodically, so he stretched things out <laughs> and out and out and out. So if you're writing a short story of three to 5,000 words, the scene length is going to depend on the story you're telling and how you want to shape it artistically. It will not be determined by the five commandments. The biggest problem that all writers have today, and here's a difficult pill to swallow for everyone, you're not well read enough. You haven't read enough books. You've got to read all the time. I hope that makes sense. Okay, if the rest of you listening, if you have any questions about global internal genres or any other story principle, you can ask it to us on Twitter at StoryGridRT or better still by going to storygrid.com slash resources, clicking on the Editor Roundtable podcast and leaving us a voice message. That wraps it up for this week. Fantastic discussion, everybody. Thank you so much, Anjari, Kim, and Leslie, for your excellent editorial insights into A Man Called Uva. We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp of how to tell global internal genre stories. If you're interested in connecting with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by telling other writers about us and by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Next time, our episode's going to be a little different. It's going to be a live show because we will all be in Nashville for the next round of editor certification training. So join us next week to hear a live from Nashville episode. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Okay, we're out. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Good work. <laughs>